I sort of had this, not epiphany, but uh, the realization that this economic uncertainty that we face at the moment because of the pandemic is actually just going to get a lot worse over the next 20 to 30 years. And so that uncertainty is really bad for society. Listening to Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay, a podcast that empowers financial brand marketing, sales, and leadership teams to maximize their digital growth potential by generating 10 times more loans and deposits. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series, where James Robert interviews the industry's top marketing, sales, and fintech leaders, sharing practical wisdom to exponentially elevate you and your team. Let's get into the show. Greetings and hello. I am James Robert Lay, and welcome to the 140th episode of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series, and I'm excited to welcome back Brett King to the show. Brett is a good friend and an early guest going all the way back to episode number five, and he's also a world-renowned futurist and speaker, an international best-selling author, and and Brett actually has the most number one best-selling titles in banking and fintech globally, more than any other author in the last decade, and he's getting ready to launch his latest book, The Rise of Technosocialism, How Inequality, AI, and Climate Will Usher in a New World Welcome back to the show, Brett. It is so good to have you on today, buddy. Good to be back on, JR. Thanks for having me. You know, we're talking about all these books, number one best-selling author with most titles in banking and fintech globally over the last decade. How many books is this now? This is technically book number seven, although book number two, which was called Branch Today, Gone Tomorrow, only was in a limited print run because it was designed to be an ebook. Yeah. But yeah, so six hard covers and one soft cover. But yeah, all good. You've got a head start on me, but uh, if uh, we want a little friendly competition, I'm gonna I'm gonna be coming up <laughs> book like. Well, uh, I'm I'm happy to assist in any way I can. No, I'm um, giving you a hard time, man. You've you've yeah. you, you've given me you've given I me put a lot. in the work. I put you, in the work. You, you definitely have. So uh, book two for me is uh, right 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 now about to get started, which will be out a year later. But let's talk about your book here because that's why that's why you're here. I think that's what people want to to learn about too is when you when you look at this and just the title. Uh, of the book why the title uh it's a bit provoking i guess you could it, say it is absolutely provocative yes i like it i always like uh things that will get people talking get people thinking so why did you choose a title so the title is the rise of techno socialism we debated a ton of different titles around this obviously the word socialism is divisive for some people And, you know, the book is not particularly political, but the changes that we're talking about, which talks about really a philosophical shift for humanity, the the fact that we have to finally work together as a species, that national borders won't matter, that political stances won't matter, none of that will matter in the end, that we just have to get our act into gear as a species and work together, that, um, you know, what do you call that? 
Well, it is, you know, working for the collective good, uh, collectivism, humanism, but none of those really are inspirational titles to, you know, titles for someone to grab a book off, off the wall. Techno collectivism. Yeah. Okay. Techno humanism, neo uh, capitalism, you know, well, none of those things really say you've got to read this and um, you know, there's, there's big issues ahead. And so, you know, it, it is about political change, but it's not a political book. It, it does this sort of agnostically. It talks about the choices we have in terms of politics, economics, and social cohesion. And it talks a lot about policy. But it's not advocating socialism in in the classical sense. It's really advocating a different worldview and a different philosophy for humanity. But ultimately we chose the title to get people to say, what's that about? And grab it off the bookshelf, right? Which, which is, in in fact, my follow-up question. What is techno-socialism? And I like that because it could have been, you know, techno-collectivism, techno-humanism. But no, it's right. what is techno-socialism at its core? So to understand techno-socialism, where it fits in, we actually look at four different paths for humanity in the book. And so we plot these on a quadrant, you know, the magic quadrant, and and that is inclusive or collective uh, policies and actions versus exclusionary or um, individualism. And then on the other quadrant, we have chaotic futures versus planned futures or what you might call dystopian and utopian, um, you know, if you're, you're into those sort of uh, classifications. And there are those four parameters are where there's a broad rejection of artificial intelligence and technology and science, which, you know, you could see as possible today. It's not, you know, there are parts of, of society rejecting science. You then have failed states, or we, we call those two sets of uh, outcomes, Ladistan and Faldistan. And then you have the exclusionary use of technology that um, accentuates the inequality that we we see today. So we call that neo-feudalism, largely driven by corporates who own more and more of public policy. And then you have techno-socialism in the top right. So techno-socialism is collective and it's planned future, um, you know, um, because we don't believe you can get to an optimal future unless it's um, unless it's planned. We say that basically techno-socialism is the optimal outcome. Yep. So we've got inclusive, exclusive, chaotic, planned as kind of the guide, the path to through through this journey here. Correct. Why this book? Why now? Like, like go back when you started writing this, and maybe from the time you started writing it, what have you seen transform as well through wow. that journey? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, I wrote a book in 2015 called Augmented: Life in the Smart Lane. And that really was a book that took us through a journey individually, how we'll live in this world with all of these new technologies and capabilities that are available to us, you know, with living with robots, living with gene therapy, living with life extension um, capabilities, uh, all of this sort of thing. But the thing I realized at the end of writing that book was I didn't really talk about how I talked about how we might adapt to these changes individually, but I didn't really talk about how society would adapt beyond, you know, looking at the way smart cities would work and things like that. I didn't look at the the politics of it or the economics of it. And of course, having seen now the pandemic 
and the corona, coronavirus effect. And even before that, seeing inequality getting worse through, you know, the previous financial crisis and so forth, you know, seeing the US ha- have the worst inequality, you know, in, in modern history, then understanding the impact of AI and that could have on jobs um, yeah. and, you know, climate change on top of that. I sort of had this not epiphany, but uh, the realization that this economic uncertainty that we face at the moment because of the pandemic is actually just going to get a lot worse over the next 20 to 30 years. And so that uncertainty is really bad for society. It's chronically bad. And so the the question was, how do we address that uncertainty? How do we give people confidence and optimism in the future rather than the current situation we have? I'm glad that's the point that you're addressing because I even go back into my mind at kind of the beginning of this pandemic and then looking at the macro level, reading in between the tea leaves, this pandemic has been a warm-up of sorts for the the major transformations we're going to experience over the next three to five to 10 years. Some are very exciting and can be very, like you said, give a lot of hope. Some can be a little bit frightening too. Let's take this into the, the banking space here just a bit because you're mentioning this, this idea of just economic transfer. Transformation. What are some of the transformations that you're seeing that, you know, if you're in the banking space, the fintech space, what do you need to be aware of here? Well, you know, the biggest one is artificial intelligence. And that's really a, about the fact that most of the jobs that we have in banks today will will disappear through automation, at least half of the jobs. And so there's, you know, banking, like many other industries, has a large potential for techno unemployment. Banking, um, to some extent, has even greater potential for that because it's been fairly resistant to change over the last two to three decades, which is ironic because banks were actually amongst the first organizations or corporations to use use large-scale computing. So you think of them as uh, technology-oriented entities. The second piece, apart from the technology piece, is uh, regulation, changes in regulation, this becoming significantly more global in its focus, particularly around financial crime prevention, money laundering or anti-money laundering. Um, and so forth. And then the third area is uh, ESG sustainability and, you know, good, being a good corporate citizen. So these, uh, you know, this, this is even without us talking about fintech and, um, you know, the impact that that is having on the, uh, the global stage, um, you know, and, and the way it's sort of reframing the banking industry uh, per se. So I guess you could say there's, there's those four elements. When you look at this idea, let's come back to AI, we, we're going to have job displacement here. What can we do to prepare for that? And might there be new job creation as well, new thinking capabilities needed to, to leverage the automation, to leverage the the AI? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, you know, so for the internet, as an example, for every job that the internet destroyed and, you know, e-commerce uh, obviously changed retail and so forth, for every job it destroyed, it created 1.6 new jobs. And this is coming from McKinsey Research, wow. uh, you know, through through the dot-com. Um, and so that's, that's a, a, a good sign. Um, and we do know that there are going to be new jobs created from the, the AI side. Um, you know, we're going to see a lot of jobs created in robotics. Um, we are going to see um, in sort of the deep learning, machine learning algorithms 
cargo space, data scientists. You know, there's a, in fact, we already have a labor, sh- labor shortage in those areas. That labor shortage is going to continue for um, the next uh, couple of decades because we're not training our kids at school for those jobs. Um, so that's why we have a shortage today. That's why we'll have a shortage tomorrow. We, we, the education system is not matched to that demand. But the impact of, you know, techno unemployment is going to be more akin to the change that we went through moving into the industrial revolution than it would be something like the dot-com era or the tronics boom of the 1960s. You know, so it's a change in the way we work. You know, think about uh, pre the industrial revolution, you know, um, most of like 60, 70% of the US workforce was involved in agriculture. Correct. Right? Um, and today that's 1.6% of the US workforce. We had other industries like the textiles industry in Britain, which was, was huge, but people really didn't work in factories apart from, you know, in the textiles space. So the whole movement of creating factories, um, you know, the industrialization of cities and all of that, that was a huge macro lifestyle change for humanity in respect to the role work plays. The same thing is is going to happen with um, both artificial intelligence and climate change. And so it's really changing the way we think of work, changing the way we think of economics at its core and the way that plays its role in society. It's a lot of change we're all experiencing. We've experienced over the last 18 months. Maybe we could even say there's some type of a fatigue that's kind of getting tied into this as well. What can the dear listener do to really prepare their mind more than anything to just be open? I know you talk and have written a lot about first principles thinking. Really be open towards creating a new future, letting go of the past to create the new. Well, the... Yeah, I think the main thing here is adaptability, is not sort of hanging on to your preconceived notions. Uh, Yeah. You know, I I have this trailer for the book and I I say the 21st century is going to be the most disruptive period humanity's ever lived through and it will challenge our most sacred ideologies. And that's really very core. Like, so let's just take high level automation. We can have the immediate effect of that as we start rolling out artificial intelligence over the next 10 to 15 years. So certainly by 2035, we see that's where sort of AI disruption will peak. But then play that out another 50 years in terms of the continual development of artificial intelligence. Massive. And we won't need to work right? Most people won't need to work. You certainly won't have work associated with your living costs. There will be no correlation between the work that you do and whether or not you you have a roof over your head or you get fed. That is a massive change in ideology. So much today we attach to whether you work hard or, you know, um, whether you're smart enough to get the right job or whether you've, you know, had the right education. None of that is going to matter in the future in, in terms of work. Um, because, you know, so that's, that's a big change. Technology has transformed our world and digital has changed the way consumers shop for and buy financial services forever. Now consumers make purchase decisions long before they walk into a branch, if they walk into a branch at all. But your financial brand still wants to grow loans and deposits. We get it. Digital growth can feel confusing, frustrating, and overwhelming for any financial brand marketing and sales leader. But it doesn't have to because James Robert wrote the book 
that guides you every step of the way along your digital growth journey. Visit www.digitalgrowth.com to get a preview of his best-selling book, Banking on Digital Growth, or order a copy right now for you and your team from Amazon. Inside, you'll find a strategic marketing manifesto that was written to transform financial brands, and it is packed full of practical and proven insights you can start using today to confidently generate 10 times more loans and deposits. Now, back to the show. That's a great point about like attachment theory. We do attach our value, our worth to the quote unquote, the work that we do. And even when looking at, you know, the, the coaching that I've done over the last five to 10 years, it's hard to let go of that because no, that's my value. That's how right. I, and, and so that's a huge mental like shift to make right there. Let's move over to the other side of the equation. Cause we've talked AI, you, then we got regulation and then we got ESG, you know, uh, from what I'm seeing, like the, what aspiration is doing around. This idea really bringing environmental cause to the forefront. When you look at this, this idea of climate impacting the banking space, what should we be aware of and be thinking about there? So today we look at the performance of corporations like banks in respect to their economic performance. You know, what's their ROE, you know, what's their, uh, you know, net earnings, uh, you know, um, you know, what multiple are they trading at? You know, all of these elements that, you know, are, are fairly normal in the stock market to evaluate, right? However, um, you know, we're starting to see incorporation of new metrics in assessing not the viability of corporations necessarily, but looks at whether they're using sustainable um, materials uh, if they're if they're producing goods and services. It also looks at things like whether or not, uh, from a social policy perspective, these corporations are doing the right thing. So you put all of this together, and over the next few years, there's going to be a lot of corporations that are really going to find a, a ton of social pressure because of poor policies. For example, banks who invest in fossil fuel corporations or banks that invest in coal mines. So we've seen in the UK just in the last month or so, you know, naked protesters at the front of Barclays and HSBC protesting um, their support for uh, fossil fuels. This sort of thing is obviously going to get more and more acute as time goes on and as the the impact of uh, the changes to the climate become, become more real to everybody. And so I think coming at the other side of this, what we have is a bunch of metrics around what makes you a good corporation that extend well beyond profitability and, you know, your share price. And this is something that I've started to talk about with financial brands. It's, you know, really developing an MVP and not being a minimal viable product, but really the conversation has been so focused on mission. It's been focused on vision, but then we bring the P in and that's purpose, purpose beyond just the internal shareholder, but then you're getting to the triple bottom line, people, profit, planet kind of a thing. Then you're also taking care of your suppliers. And and it really is a much larger play at stake. Even on the environmental side, I was working with a financial brand out of the Northwest two weeks ago, and they were looking at making an early play. This is a community institution looking at making a national play on the solar side of things, uh, solar lending. And they know that they're early on in the game, but they were like, yeah, fossil fuels, this idea of an oily economy is one that's dwindling. They know they might be a little bit early to the market at a macro level, but I think they want to be at the precipice of that wave and and, and ride it. Look, I think, um, you know, I, I think that's great. 
that they're doing that. And I think those sort of things become increasingly important. And there's going to be organizations that are made or, or broken as a result of sort of this philosophical approach to, to this thing. I, you know, I, I think the one area that is, uh, is going to be super interesting through, throughout this process is, um, we do have to think about the economy very differently in the future because of AI and because of climate, we have to ask the question, what is the economy for? And there's, there's two potential answers to that. One is it creates economic growth. It creates GDP growth. It creates jobs. It creates trade. You know, this is the economist's view of, of the economy. But on the other hand, the other view is, well, the economy should look after the needs of its citizens. It should make its citizens happy and healthy. And so on the, on the former, the US is one of the most successful economies the world has ever seen. On the latter, it's a demonstrable failure because of inequality and the gap between rich and poor. And so we have to start to sort of bring those two worlds together and say the economy has to work for its people and also generate economic activity. And so how do we prioritise those two things better yeah. than we do currently in, in sort of the, uh, the the model we have today? Thinking about like all of the the chaos and coming back to your quadrant here the the chaotic piece of this what should be keeping a financial brand leader up at night what should they be thinking about and and, and remunerating on here i think um you know it's really what's the role of of the business that you have and um you know can you hand on heart say that not only are you an efficient business you're generating returns and so forth but are you are you actively trying to do something that's socially good because i think Ultimately, if you have a social lens on what you do, whether that's financial inclusion or whether that is not polluting the planet, you know, if you if you start to build your business that way, you do have to think quite differently about the business. It's no longer just it doesn't matter as long as we're generating return, everyone's going to be fine. Right. And so you have to, I think, be a little you know, smarter about uh, the way you build your business in this world. Something that you talked on before about the economy is, you know, being healthy, being happy. Where might we be able to start having more conversations around the correlation between a person's financial well-being, physical well-being, financial well-being, mental well-being? What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, we can see um, that in terms of the economic pressure that we faced over the last few years, and this is even before the pandemic occurred, obviously um, we've seen the statistics that the US billionaires accumulated more than a trillion dollars during the pandemic. The world's trillionaires uh, surpassed 10 trillion, oh, sorry, the world's billionaires surpassed $10 trillion for the first time. Um, you know, and so um, the, the, you know, the, the top 1%, richest in, in the US own more than the, the bottom 90%. You know, we've seen these statistics, but even prior to the pandemic, that those economic pressures were very clear upon the world because of the changes already taking place, because of the inequality that's already there, the homelessness and, and so forth. So when you when you look at that as a as a factor, you you see it expressed in society through protests and, and the like. So the number of protests in the first 20 years of this century were 200% 
greater in terms of volume of protests than we've seen in the last 50 years of the 20th century. But participation rates rose by tenfold, a thousand percent. And you see that happening all around the world. This is not just happening, um, you know, as you know, uh, as as a result of like, you know, the election protests or protests against Trump. We're talking about protests of all sorts of different um, causes, dissatisfaction with the government, you know, concern about climate change, etc. And so, when you have this level of dissatisfaction or discontent, the system will break. Yep. Historically, that's what we we found. And so, either. Will and Ariel Durant, who wrote Lessons from History back in the 60s, when they studied all of these revolutions and so forth in the past and governmental systems, they said, you know, there's there's two ways this ends, either redistribution of wealth through legislation or revolution. And um, that's the inflection point we're coming to in society. And if you go back and you study the, for example, American Revolution, you study the Civil War and the French Revolution, it was going through these these economic transformational periods from, like you said, agricultural Absolutely. to industrial to now technological to now techno. So, I mean, really, it's just you go back and you study history and there's nothing new under the sun, as, as ancient wisdom says. Let's give the dear listener some hope, right? It's, it doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. Yeah, there is there's hope. Let's, and what, do you, what is that? What are you most hopeful about? What could the dear listener be most hopeful about looking ahead? Coming out the other side of this, humanity's going to enjoy a period of abundance and prosperity that simply isn't possible with the current system and something that is sustainable for the entire planet, right? That's the end game. So a new renaissance, a new golden age. Yes. New golden age. No one will ever have to worry about putting a roof over their head or putting food in their belly, you know? Um, And the work that we do will be full of purpose. Like you said before, is when you work in the future, you'll choose to do something that you're passionate about that you think can make a difference rather than that you have to put food on the table. So one of the, you know, the big, one of the biggest employers over the next century will be climate mitigation, extracting carbon from the atmosphere, you know, building seawall defenses around New York and Miami to stop it from getting flooded, you know, making our infrastructure resilient to, uh, um, you know, extreme weather events. I mean, um, you know, retooling the energy uh, uh, grids that we have to, to work off renewables and do battery storage. We're talking about hundreds of millions of people employed in these industries just by uh, early next decade. Well, look at what Peter Diamandis and Elon Musk are teaming up with, right. with the new X prize, $100 million to pull carbon out of the air and actually do something with that. It, is, it really is an exciting time in the banking space. The biggest roadblocks that we just need to be aware of that could prevent us from moving forward down this path to what I have always said to create a bigger, better, brighter future for those that are in the communities that we're serving. What What's the big roadblocks that we just need to be aware of? Because I think it's awareness. All, all transformation and growth begins with one thing, telling the truth about where you've been, where you're at, where you could grow next. What's the awareness that we need to bring to the table really at a senior leadership level and then bring that throughout the organization? Well, one thing that's become clear during the pandemic is, you know, I think the banks actually don't help you financially when it comes to wellness. 
um, banks don't help you save. Now, banks will say, well, yes, we do. We provide savings accounts for people. That's not helping people save. You know, you have to change the role that money has in people's lives and get them to think about that differently or use that resource differently Mm -hmm. to get a different result. And so banks have really not done that. In fact, you know, the products that we have, the credit cards, um, you know, uh, the cashback, the airline miles, the rewards, you know, you look at that, we've we've been stimulated to, to spend money rather than save money over the, you know, since the creation of the credit card uh, product at least. And so when it comes to um, the immediate impact of the pandemic, we're going to see a lot more focus on financial well-being, financial health and helping um, people manage their money. So the battle of the smart bank accounts is coming. Yes. Um, and wallets right now are winning that. If you look at that on a global basis, more people today use mobile wallets day to day for discretionary spending than they do a plastic card. That shift already has taken place over the last couple of years, even before the pandemic, which accelerated it. So if you're in banking today and you want people to use your bank account and have access you know, to the products and features that you have of that, you must have at its core the ability to help people manage their money. That's That's what the purpose of a bank account should be. Yes. And by, you know, I've always said, if you can transform a person's wallet, you can transform their physical well-being, their mental well-being. They're all interconnected. It is definitely correlation. And a lot of that honestly starts with the relationship that the individual has with money in and of itself. And if we can bring to bear, once again, awareness to a person's individual spending behaviors, then we can also help them, you know, create reinforced positive savings behaviors. Where do we get started? I always like to end on a very practical perspective. It's been a great conversation because all all change, all transformation begins with that small, simple step first that goes to the next, to the next, to the next. What's your recommendation on where the dear listener could get started as we look to move forward into this into this new future here? Go to www.riseoftechnosocialism.com <laughs> or, or wherever good books are sold. Now, um, I think as a thought exercise you know, or in in terms of getting yourself prepared for this future. I think just, just imagine a world that would give you the freedom to pursue something that you feel really passionately, passionately about. And so Hmm. um, what is it that if money was no object and you could spend the rest of your life doing this, what would give you the most satisfaction and, at the same time, be something that would be really useful for the citizens around you and the planet as a whole. Um, and start imagining that life because that life is is possible with the, the future that we're uh, emerging into. And I, I would build upon that thought. That's a great thought exercise. This is one that I learned from uh, Dan Sullivan. It's called the, because you mentioned life extension before, like, you know, imagine the year that you're going to die. 85. Okay. And then imagine with all of the advances that we're going to see over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Okay. What, what are we going to get? Maybe an extra 30, an extra 40. And these are quality years. Exactly. And, and then you subtract, let's just say 125 to 85. Look so at Bill Shatner, 90 going into space. space right? Yeah. You get an extra 40 years with that extra 40 years, write down everything that you'd like to do. Yeah. And then why are you waiting? Start doing some of this stuff now, because I think that's going to give you that purpose, that energy to fuel, fuel you further, farther, faster. You're right. I mean, William Shatner going into space. I mean space the final frontier and and exactly. these are the voyages 
We actually have a quote from Aubrey de Grey in there. Aubrey de Grey is one of the uh, leading scientists that looks at cell senescence and, um, you know, longevity. And he says that we will reach escape longevity by 2036. And so a lot is going to be happening next, next decade. So escape longevity means where we will be able to stop the aging process. You won't be getting any older. It doesn't mean you'll be getting younger necessarily, but that's the first thing. Let's just stop us, stop ourselves getting that. That's not far away. We're talking about... It's a controversial subject. Aging is a disease, but it can be treated like a disease as well, you know? Uh, We're talking about the uh, roughly the same time frame from when the iPhone first came out to when we're going to stop aging. You know, it's like, it's mind-blowing. It really, it really yeah. is. I'm excited. Like, uh, you know, the world that we're, we're, we're getting to create together, it is a world that I am truly hopeful for. Um, I think about my four kids and really what they're going to get to experience. I'm even probably more hopeful for them. It really is. It really is. You mentioned the book before. Um, what's the best way that someone can grab a copy? Well, again, they can go to the website, riseoftechnosocialism.com. There's the trailer there. There's a link to the different booksellers. Um, of course, it is listed on amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. You know, if you can go and pre-order that uh, prior to the release date, uh, middle of next month, that'll be hugely helpful for us because we're uh, we're getting very close to our goal of getting this book listed on the New York Times and every book that's pre-ordered helps us uh, towards that because the first week they ship, all that volume gets counted. And we should be releasing this right before the that time period. So what is that that specific release November date? November 21st is the global release date, November 21. Yeah, so so the dear listener, please do go grab a copy. Let's get this as a New York Times bestseller. It's an important read. It's one that I'm excited about. And uh, don't forget to tune into Brett's podcast too. Keep learning from him. Breaking Banks, a lot of good stuff over there. Brett, as always, thanks for joining me, man. This has been a fun conversation today. Fantastic, JR. Thank you. And uh, keep growing. Keep moving forward. As always, and until next time, be well, do good, and make your bed. Thank you for listening to another episode of Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay. Like what you hear? Tell a friend about the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify and subscribe while you're there. To get even more practical and proven insights, visit www.digitalgrowth.com to grab a preview of James Robert's best-selling book, Banking on Digital Growth, or order a copy right now for you and your team from Amazon. Inside you'll find a strategic marketing and sales blueprint framed around 12 key areas of focus that empower you to confidently generate 10 times more loans and deposits. Until next time, be well and do good.